Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, the second of the Beatitudes. Now, I want to remind you that when you read the Beatitudes, one, you can separate them as we are. They do stand alone. But they are intended to compound one on top of the other. So it's not just looking at someone who needs to be poor in spirit, we leave it there, or as in the case of the next one that we're on today, those who mourn, for that person is ultimately going to be comforted. It is as you put these together, it creates in you that transformative work of the Spirit that will leave you complete and lacking nothing. This is the wisdom of God to you and to me. And in this sense, this particular Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I can't tell you how many times I have either heard, used myself, read this particular beatitude used at a memorial service or a funeral or a gravesite. It's often used that way, and while that is also an appropriate understanding because God is near to the brokenhearted, amen? The downcast he will not cast out, amen? He loves people so deeply that Jesus himself, the shortest verse in our English Bible, in English, it's not the shortest verse in the original language, but the shortest verse in English is two words, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. So the Bible is filled with the understanding that the human condition is sometimes really hard. A source of pain, anguish, hurt. But I want to ask you a question. Is that actually what this beatitude is about? And I want to unpack this for us this morning. Because while it is true, God does care that you hurt. There's one hurt that's greater than all other hurts. And it's a hurt that everyone is born with. It's a hurt that you can do nothing about yourself. You're incapable of fixing the very specific hurt that is in view in this passage. The thing that should bring you to mourning, weeping, agonizing, and crying. And while every sadness, God knows. I was talking to that mom this morning. God knows. All of our sadness is not going to bring our son back. 
God knows. It caught her by surprise. It did not take God by surprise. God wasn't stunned. In that sense, God doesn't wake up as we do. I got up this morning and I'm like, I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but as you get older, you know, when you get up when you're a child, you, your feet hit the floor running. <laughs> now my floor, my floor seems to be like three stories down. I can't find it. It's like I fall out of bed. God knows. God knows the depths of the things that you're going through. What kind of mourning is in view here? The word translated mourn here is the Greek word from the Greek New Testament, penteo. And what it simply means is heartbreaking lament over a tragic death. Now, I don't plan who texts me. I don't plan who calls me, so it's no shock to me that on a day when we're going to teach this particular message, before five o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call. The Septuagint version of the Old Testament, Jacob used this word when he thought his son Joseph was dead. The Hebrew equivalent of it. He rent his clothes there in Genesis 37, and he put on sackcloth, and he mourned for his son for many days. It's the same word that David used when he realized the depth of his sin against God when he assigned Uriah the Hittite to go to the front lines and he died and then as punishment because the Bible is very clear in 2 Samuel 12 that David lost his son that was born to, the Bible says, Uriah's wife, not David's wife. The same word. The Lord struck that child. The Lord took that child. The Lord acted in a way to take the life of that child, to take the child to heaven, to teach David a lesson about mourning. You're probably saying to yourself, well, I don't know that I need this message today. The world is a big enough mess. I, I don't know that I want to hear about this subject. Church, hang in there. I believe that there's exactly one type of mourning that's in view in this passage. And it is the sadness of sin. It's not just sadness in general. It's us mourning over our sin. It's us recognizing how far short we have fallen from the glory of God. 
that produces in us a gratitude towards the Lord that is inexplicable. Because in spite of my sin, my Savior's love for me, Jesus' death on the cross, as the Apostle Paul rightly says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? Jesus literally killed death for you. Death is dead to the believer. But it cost Jesus his life. It cost God his son. It was extremely painful to the Trinity. The Holy Spirit had to raise Jesus from the dead. And so in this sense, David knew that sadness. He actually would finally declare in verse 24 of 2 Samuel 12, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David then therefore comforted his wife Bathsheba. There was an earthly pain, but greater is the pain heavenly. Because every sin is an offense against God. It may be an offense against a person as well, but ultimately sin is sin because it hurts the heart of God. It destroys our relationship with him. And so I believe that this particular beatitude is speaking of deep heavenly things. One of the tragedies we have of living here in the South Bay, being so close to the ocean and the marine layer, it obscures the night sky. You can't see the stars, but when you get away to the mountains or get away to the desert and you look up, Against that velvet of night, the stars shine the brightest. Amen? And that is the same with your sin. It is against the backdrop of the sin in our lives that God's grace shines the brightest. That's where we see him in his fullness. What he has actually done for you and for me. And of course, Jesus knows this. And so he says, blessed are they who mourn. Jesus said, in essence, happy are the sad. Joy-filled are the, person, the persons or person who genuinely understands who they are as a saved sinner. Notice what I just said. We are all sinners. The only question is, are you a saved sinner? And there's only one way for that to happen. And that is by grace and through faith. And because of that, the person who is saved from their sin has a type of rejoicing that the rest of the world doesn't know. A happiness they can't have. You see, to the answer of every pain that you have, Jesus speaks these words. You will one day be with him in paradise. Every sadness has a point of termination to the believer. 
It will not always be sad. You won't always bear that pain. One day you will be in the presence of the Lord wherein there is fullness of joy. Life everlasting. No more sorrow. No more tears. The stain of the entirety of everything that was ever horrible in your life will be forever dealt with. And Jesus therefore speaks to us of this incredible paradox. You see, because in this world, he said, you will have tribulation, trial, difficulty, pain, anguish. One of the most horrific heresies that is floating around, especially in American Christendom, is that God is going to remove every single pain that you will ever experience the moment you get saved. Like, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise, you know, you just pray and your cancer's gone, bro. Oh, you know what? I've prayed with people at their bedside, begging God to spare their life, to watch them die in agony. Let me be clear. I have asked God to save children, and they've died. Let me be clear. I have asked for people's finances to be restored. They are broke to this day. Let me be clear. God promised us, not in this life, that all of our pains would be gone. But in the next life, all of our pains would be gone. That's the beauty of salvation. It equalizes everything that you've gone on. You see, because this life is a vapor. You are here for a while and you will be gone. If you live to be ancient, you make it to 120. Personally, I think God doesn't want you in heaven. I don't know why he would leave anybody here for 120 years. I can't figure it. The way I feel right now, not a chance. I'm joking, of course. But think about it for a second. Let's say you happen to also be 120 years old and you're Elon Musk. Okay, so you're probably not going to get food stamps. You're not going to have to worry about which model of car or which house or which boat or which you know, small island you want to buy. You'll have everything this world has to offer. But without Christ, you're going to have it for 120 years and for eternity, nothing but pain. The exact opposite is true for the believer. You may have nothing. You may live your life in abject poverty, pain, and have nothing in this life. But the moment you take your last breath, you have the riches of the king forever. Amen? How do you have those riches? You have to mourn over your sin. You have to repent. You have to admit that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior because you can't go to heaven without professing Jesus Christ as Lord. 
You see, without him, you get to keep what you already have. And that, for almost everyone, is going to be some pain here and now, and it will be inexplicable pain later. And so Jesus boils this down. He actually says in Luke chapter 6, verse 25, the the converse beatitude, if you will, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Why, Why would he say that? Is God against us being happy? Of course not. Does God want everybody miserable? Of course not. Is he saying you you can't laugh at a joke that strikes you? Of course not. But what he's saying is, is all the laughing in the world won't change your eternity. I don't care who you are. You, You could be the funniest person on the planet. And if you die in your sin, you will not be laughing when you take your last breath. But if you're in Christ Jesus, the moment you take your last breath, you are going to be giggling for joy in the presence of the Lord. So what is this? true meaning of this word mourning that overcomes these things that we look at as the only source of happiness in this world. You talk to people about what makes them happy, it's generally things like wealth, a career, a marriage, children, and all those things can be absolutely wonderful. Jesus is not against any of those things. Let me be very, very clear here. The Lord's not against you having a wonderful life now as well. But his chief concern, remember Jesus said, I am about my Father's kingdom. Amen? Why would he make that distinction? Because there is another kingdom. And it's the kingdom of this world. And it's very attractive because it offers you stuff today. You think that's a problem in our world? I don't know if you've watched lately, but a Happy Meal is now $67.95. <laughs> True, right? You know what I'm saying. It's like you go in there, it's, they're not Happy Meals there. It's like, dear God meals. How could this be? It's like you pull out this plastic toy that probably cost .07 cents. And I paid $14 for this. Because the burger, the fries, and the Coke are the same as the regular small burger, fries, and Coke, but it comes in a nice box. And by the way, I like Happy Meals. I'm not against, God's not against Happy Meals. But Happy Meals can't make you happy, can they? Oh, you hand them to their children, then what do they do? He got the toy I wanted. She got the toy. I got a boy toy. I'm going to a girl toy. Now they make gender neutral toys. We can't even, we have to mess with that. It's like there can't be anything in there that, oh, well, it's good for everyone. Why am I taking time to say this? Because that's how frivolous we are oftentimes with our happiness. We're we're thinking a Happy Meal is going to make us happy, and a Happy Meal is not going to make you happy. 
Oh, temporarily, you're going to put a smile on your face. Then it's going to be, I want to go back and get another one. And the same is true for adults with homes and bank accounts and cars. The appetite that we have for things cannot be satiated. It's an impossibility. It doesn't matter how much you have. And so Jesus is going to get to the real source of our happiness. To do that, we have to get to the true meaning of mourning. Because let's, let's be clear. The Bible shows us unbiblical mourning. David's son Amnon was frustrated because he couldn't have relationship with his sister Tamar. That is unbiblical mourning. He was like, he was beside himself with grief that he couldn't have incest with his sister. I think that's pretty clear for most of us to see in this room. Sometimes people take legitimate sorrow and they carry it to illegitimate extremes. You've probably met people that have gone through that to where it's just like they refuse to relinquish to God that deep hurt doesn't mean the hurt wasn't genuine. doesn't mean that there wasn't a proper response to it. It means that sometimes grief can actually become sinful. It denies the power of God to heal. doesn't make those things go away so that you can no longer remember them. But if you truly believe what God's word says then he actually is for you. He's not against you. He hasn't designed that pain to be forever. You need to let it go, just like David did. you got to let go of the pain. And eventually David went into the house of the Lord, and he says, Lord, I'm going to get busy about your business. You see, you can take legitimate sorrow, and you can hang on to it for so long, that it no longer even serves the original intended purpose. You can see that as Joab finally rebuked King David over Absalom. If you remember, and this is an incredible story in 2 Samuel chapter 19, if you want to read the whole thing. But there Joab, speaking to David the king, said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all of your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then today you would be pleased. Absalom was David's son. There's a tomb to Absalom in Jerusalem to this day. But David had taken it so far that if everyone who had ever been nice to him had died, he would have been happy. That's way too far with grief. But there are legitimate types of mourning. Divine love grieves, doesn't it? God grieves over every lost sheep. Why do you think Jesus would leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one? Because he's grieved over lostness. There's a right type of grieving. There's a right type of mourning in that sense. 
There's actually an ancient Arab proverb that says all sunshine makes a desert. Amen? You, you understand? Like you live someplace where there's never any cloud cover, never any shade, there, there's never any rain, nothing ever happens that we would say, oh, well, that kind of is, it's a, it's a gloomy day. So it makes a desert. What God is speaking to us through this particular beatitude is a trouble-free life is often also a very shallow life. The person who's been through nothing, who has not experienced pain, you know how you know that you love someone when you are willing to endure pain for them. Amen? If you're a parent, say amen. True? Am I right? Why is that? Because you will endure any kind of pain for your children. You would gladly take that pain upon yourself for your children. That actually identifies the depth of the love. Now imagine that Jesus loves you so much that he died in your place on Calvary's cross. How much do you think there is legitimate love there? But there was also legitimate pain there. And mourning there. So much so that God the Father turned his back on Jesus, his son. That's how sad that circumstance actually was. When Jesus bore the sins of the world on his body, on the cross, God the Father says, I can't even bear to look at you. You see, there's a type of mourning that is very legitimate. And it's heavenly mourning. It's us seeing things from God's perspective. It's the essence of godly mourning. Jesus experienced the grief that you and I experienced with Lazarus, remember? But you kind of got to know behind the scenes when Jesus was going to Bethany and Mary and Martha sent for Jesus, remember that Jesus actually stopped along the way? He delayed his coming to give Lazarus time to croak. Think about that one for a second. Matter of fact, so much so that the Sisters are going, if you'd have just gotten here sooner, our brother wouldn't have died. You know what that tells me? Jesus let him die. He says, there's something you need to know. Maybe they were loving their brother more than they were loving Jesus. I don't know. We're not told. But I know this, Jesus still hurt for them. Jesus still wept over the fact that Lazarus was dead, even though Lazarus died because God had foreordained that it was Lazarus' time, at least for a couple of days, for Lazarus to be dead. But what happened to Lazarus? Lazarus is one of the... I want to talk to Lazarus when I get to heaven. Dude, you had to die twice. Think about it. He dies. 
He goes in the grave. He goes to Abraham's bosom. Jesus comes and gets him, and then he has to die again. There's a special Lazarus blessing, I'm, I'm sure of it. The point is this. There's a type of godly mourning. And it has nothing to do with legitimate or illegitimate types of mourning or or the depth of mourning or the type of sorrow. It has to do with what Jesus is primarily concerned with. You know, sometimes people send me the craziest books. It's like a hundred things that Jesus wants you to have today. Seriously. And it's like, I mean, there were, it's like cars and houses and bank accounts. And I'm, I'm like reading through and it's like, well, I guess I failed that test and that test and that test and this test. And man, Jesus must not love me at all. It's like, and start checking them off. But there is something that Jesus really wants us to mourn about. He wants us to have godly sorrow over. And the apostle Paul writes of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And you can see it there, for sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. You see, when I am sorrowful over the right things, it produces something I can't get any other way. When I recognize that I am a sinner that desperately needs a Savior, it produces in me a desire to have salvation. The problem with a lot of people is they don't see the need for Jesus. Matter of fact, many people will tell you, well, I'm, I'm a good person. Anybody heard that? When you're talking to somebody about Jesus, oh, I'm a good person. But you're not a good enough person. I've never sinned. You know, the Bible, John actually says that if you say you're without sin, you're actually a liar and the love of God's not in you. And it says that to people who already know him, by the way. It says that to Christians. So if it's true for Christians, how much more true do you think it is for people that don't know Jesus? If you think you're the lone person in this room who isn't a sinner and doesn't need a Savior, you are wrong. Now you may not like what I just said, but the truth of the matter is, the Bible says so. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You see, there's a type of godly sorrow that produces something that cannot be produced any other way. And it's a sorrow over my sin. It's a head-shaking sorrow. It's like, Lord, I am so sorry. I can't believe I did that. I hate the fact that I do those things. And if you don't think that believers shouldn't think that way, just read Romans chapter 7. Which are the words of the Apostle Paul, whom I'm pretty sure we all think was saved. 
not talking about his previous life because he uses the first person 19 times in that passage. Those things which I will to do, I do not do. Those things which I will not to do, these very things I do, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank God through Christ Jesus my Lord that I am saved. Amen? Amen. You're a Christian, you ought to be applauding right now. Not for me, for him. Because he saved you. You didn't save yourself and you're not worthy of that salvation. That's why when David got it right there in the 51st Psalm, it was so powerful. He recognized, what did he write? Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. He finally got it. And it broke his heart. Blessed are those, David would, would write, whose transgressions are forgiven. You, you see, mourning is a state that we all can understand because we've all sinned. And you're saying, well, you know, I... You know, I got saved like three weeks ago. I haven't sinned since. Well, you just did. You lied. (laughs) And you're prideful and arrogant. So all three things, problem for God. I don't say that to shame you. That's how deep the problem is. But we sit around, well, you know, I don't do what so-and-so does. That's not what sin is defined by. Take the righteousness of God, that's the standard, and ask yourself, are you as righteous as God? All day, every day, in all things. I'm going, nap, sinner. Bad attitude, bad attitude, bad attitude. Did you know bad attitudes are actually sin? So these B attitudes are to change your bad attitudes. Why do you think the Beatitudes are in your Bible? Because y'all got bad attitudes. You think the wrong thing. You do the wrong thing. You have the wrong attitude about a lot of things. You see, we always point out the big things that other people struggle with. But we don't point out the things that we struggle with. Envy. Jealousy. Strife, vanity, close your ears, gluttony, it's a sin. So when we're in there, it's like, yeah, can I have the uh, 72-ounce drink and the four-pound fries? And the... It's enough to feed a small country. We're like, yeah, give me the big one. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm saying, I'm a sinner. Okay? I'm that guy. Any of you do this? Confession time. (laughs) Connie will send me, and she'll go, I want a quarter pounder with cheese, a small fry, and a small iced tea. And you know what my retort to that is? You realize that's going to cost more than a regular meal. 
And she'll go, yeah, but I don't want the extra fries and the extra drink, and I, I just want the quarter pounder. And I'm going, yeah, but it's going to cost 60 I have it in my head, 67 cents more. <laughs> the problem is me. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. But when you have that universal sense of mourning, you you get to where David is. The situation here on earth is not going to get eternally better. Let me just shoot straight with you. It's going to get worse. The Bible says so. I'm not a prophet of doom, and I actually don't want it to get worse, but the Bible says it will. So for me to ignore that is to ignore what the Bible plainly teaches. I'm not going to do that. That would be foolish on my part. So I think the propensity to sin is going to get greater and greater and greater and greater. You think that's probably true, given what's going on in our country? We literally have protests around our country where people are gathering in the tens of thousands to loudly shout, I don't want it to cost too much to kill my child. You think that's a problem for God? I think it is. That doesn't mean that we can't have compassion on people who are struggling with that decision. But the fact of the matter is, they know what causes pregnancy. That's actually the issue, isn't it? We can, we can sit around and talk about it all day long. The fact of the matter is, if you don't have sex with someone you don't want to have a baby with, and you don't want to raise that baby together, you won't be in that situation. There's no constitutional guarantee to recreational sex, okay? Just saying. That's an example of how messed up our world is. You have church saying, well, you know, we just have to, we got to make sure that we, you know, maintain this right. What right exactly is that? For they were knit together in their mother's womb by the hand of the living God. Amen? But you know what that does? It just makes people sinners who need saviors. Need one Savior, Jesus. Doesn't make those people that are going down that road worse than the person who habitually lies. Worse than the person who's a habitual drunk. We like to categorize sins. Well, that's a that's a ten point five, that one right there. No, sin is sin. It's all a sin against a heavenly father who loves you. And so we're supposed to mourn over that sin. That's what brings true happiness. It's what James says there in James 4. We're not supposed to joke about it. We're not supposed to try and deal with it. We're not supposed to compromise with it. We're supposed to mourn over it. We're not supposed to try and explain it away. We're not supposed to make laws. It's, it's mind-boggling how many laws we have that are a complete offense to God. And yet I have people who say they're believers that look me right in the eye. Well, it's legal. Yep. 
You're right, it's legal, but that doesn't mean it's not sin. That's why we need a Savior. When you hate sin, you're open to what God wants to do in your life. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this beatitude. He's saying, I want you to so hate sin that you will so love me. I want you to despise sin so that you will cry out to me. That my growing awareness of sinfulness, just as 1 John 1 says, it is like a trigger to me. It's like, man, I know I need Jesus. I know I need Jesus. Why? Because I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need those sins forgiven. Otherwise, I'm not going to heaven. And I'm going to be stuck with what I already have. And that's not going to bring me joy. That's why there is a blessing to mourning. We see it for what it is. We recognize that hyper-abounding grace that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5. Where sin abounds, Paul said, grace abounds all the more. And church, we want to walk in that abounding grace. In order to do that, we need to hate anything that's against it. And the only things that are against it are things that are sin. It's not other people. It's the sin that's inside of me. It's not because other people have behaviors. It's the sin inside of me. It's the sin inside of you. And to that end, we all need a little bit more mourning over our sin. Wake up in the morning, it's like, Lord, don't let me displease you today. Lord, don't let me shame you today. Lord, don't let me do anything that would hurt your heart. God, please stop me when I get to those places to where I might do something that would bring dishonor to your name so that people would think you're okay with that stuff because you're not. And if I tell them that you're okay with it, then they won't cry out to you. They won't see sin. That church is why we must stand in these areas in our culture where the culture's going the other way. Because if we go with the flow of the culture, then people don't know they're going the wrong way. Hence, they think the church and God, thereby, is okay with it. And God's not okay with it. As painful as that may be for you to say, no, I don't believe two men can marry one another and be okay with God. God is not okay with the the shedding of innocent blood. He plainly said he's not. You need not go any further than that. God's not okay with drunkenness or anything that destroys your mind. We need to mourn these things. And when we do, it turns us back to the Savior that can save us from our sin. Amen? Would you stand with me? Amen. 
I want to pray for us because I think we all need a little bit of extra awareness in this area of life. Father, we pray, I pray, that you would give us an awareness of our sinfulness. And that sinfulness would cause us to be sad. And that that sadness would cause us to act. Lord, we pray that you would just give us these small victories in areas to where we have perhaps stumbled this week. Lord, maybe there's someone in this room that's planning some activity. They know it's wrong. God, maybe there's someone here that is contemplating some form of sinful behavior even now. God, would you speak to their heart? Would you let them know of your amazing grace? And if they'll turn from it, you will bless them. And they'll take that cue from you to let that morning be turned into joy. God, we thank you for salvation, which is rich and free. And I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that right now they would cry out to you and invite you, Jesus, in to be Savior and Lord. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. Watch over us now as we go out into this world that is against you. It's against uh, those of us who, who know you and love you. Lord, help us because we truly need your help to get through this world and to have joy while doing it. And so bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.